So we are now towards the last part of our day. I'm going to be your final presenter in just a moment. But as we've been mentioning throughout today, this entire theme of day three, agorism and parallel networks, is inspired by the man named Samuel Edward Konkin III. And we're going to play a tribute video to him in just a moment. You can learn a little bit about his life. I'm actually working on a biography that I'm going to release later this year about his life because I don't want his work and him to be forgotten, and I think he's that important. And I have John Bush, Adam Kokesh, and a few others to thank for introducing me to the concept back in 2011. I'll just tell this story briefly. Uh, we Back in the early 2010s, there was this in the Fed movement. Anybody remember that in the United States, ending the Federal Reserve? And really ending all central banks, but in the U.S. it's the Federal Reserve. And every November 22nd, people would host these rallies at all the banks around the U.S. And so, you know, the big banks in New York and St. Louis and other places. Well, there's a regional bank in Houston, Texas, where I'm originally from. And we used to go out there every week, multiple times a week, hold up signs, pass out DVDs, trying to talk to people about the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, you get a few honks here and there, but the Fed still stands. And we held our, our rally in 2011, and actually Danny Panzella came, John came, and they both, you know, to me, it's like, wow, I'm getting these really cool guys I met from the internet, and they're coming down to speak for our event. And I was just still, you know, wide-eyed and just ready to learn. And John came there and gave a really powerful speech, which you can still find on YouTube if you search John Bush, Federal Reserve, 2011, and the Fed. It's still up there. And... What John was saying, which just clicked so clearly in my mind, you know, we're looking at the Fed and he's like, hey, there's the building. And the big thing that matters, we can keep having these rallies and keep protesting and marching. But if we're still using the Federal Reserve note, then the system's still going to stand. And at that time, there wasn't so much focus on cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Monero and others. It was mainly people promoting precious metals like silver coins, silver dollars, gold backs and things like that. And I remember John speaking about that and saying, so look, if we just start using other currencies and get out of their system, then their system can become irrelevant. And I guess my spirit had been waiting for that message because I took it and ran with it ever since. And it already sort of aligned with the way I was living my life as well. I hadn't been, I've never used a bank. I think I got a bank account when I was 18. I overdrafted and I never went back. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'm not meant to do this banking thing. And then a few years later, I would come into this information and realize, oh, maybe this is why I was sort of, you know, in intuitively pushed away from those systems. Nonetheless, though, I really embraced uh, John's, you know, inspiration. And John was talking about agorism, Samuel Edward Konkin III. He, he wrote three books. Two of them were published, one after he died, and the other one I published just recently, and it's unfinished. His first book is called The New Libertarian Manifesto. And I encourage you to read it, but I will warn you, He's kind of dry for some people. This is why I've taken his work and tried to update it. So if you've read my book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, which we have available in English and Spanish on the table, then you've kind of got Conkin's work. I still encourage you to check out the source, but for some people, he's very scientific-minded. And you're going to hear in this video, I actually didn't know this, but he, was, he had a, multiple degrees in chemistry. And he could have gone on to have his master's in New York University and been a professor, uh, but he decided there was something else to do with his life. So he was an activist in the 60s. I'm going to tell one story, and we'll play the video, a story that's not in the video. Who here was alive during the 60s students' movements? I know we got some folks here. And it, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, right? Vietnam War, Summer of Love. like it, These are like legendary stories for the rest of us, right? You guys got to live through it. Well, Konkin was alive during that time. He was born in 46, I think 46 or 47. And so he's in his teens, early 20s at the end of the 60s. He came from Canada, ended up going to Wisconsin University. He joined the Young Americans for Freedom. And he was actually at the Young Americans Freedom was like the biggest group for freedom-minded libertarian-minded people in the U.S. at the time, student group. 
and there was more conservative people in it, and there was more libertarian-minded people in it. And the Vietnam War split this group in half because some people were like, forget this, we're not supporting the war, we're ready to burn our draft cards, where the other side was very much like, we gotta support the war, you know, this and that. And so at the 1969 conference in St. Louis, Samuel Conklin was there, Murray Rothbard, a lot of big, you know, movement heroes were there. And there was one student who, in the middle of that meeting, pulled out his draft card and set it on fire. And from what I'm told in my research, fights broke out immediately, and all of the libertarian-minded people were immediately kicked out and removed from the group, excommunicated, and that basically birthed the modern movement that many of us have been inspired by, because from there they said, all right, well, if they don't want to work with us, we'll create our own thing. And Konkin was there, he witnessed that, and that was instrumental, I believe, in his, his awakening. And his big message, as we've been promoting today, is that the true answers are not going to come from politics. And I'm going to speak more about that as well, because some of you know I ran for mayor, and I'm going to talk about that. But that the real answers are in building parallel systems and parallel economies. So Samuel Konkin was born in 1956. He died in 2004 before cryptocurrency, before parallel networks, before the greater reset. And I, I, I can only imagine the things he would have to say if he was still alive today. And I want to share one message. I found this quote from him recently. He wrote this just a couple years before his death. And I think it's, it's kind of timely. And I also want to make one more point that we're, you know, we're highlighting Konkin because we take inspiration from him. But... You know, I don't think we should idolize anybody. Everybody's humans, everybody's imperfect, but we can learn from each other, we can take from each other and grow. So this is what Samuel Konkin said in late 2002, a couple years before his death. He was active on Yahoo groups towards the end of his life, and I think he was speaking to us. He says, the task of libertarian activists, freedom activists, whatever you want to say, while it is still possible to speak freely above ground, is to prove convincingly to the masses and now remember, he's saying this is early 2000s, beginning of the internet. He says, especially the young enterprising masses and the global economy who are now linked in the free market anarchist haven known as the internet. So our task is to prove convincingly to the masses that resistance and disobedience and economic activity is the most moral human action possible. Resistance and economic activity, creating new systems, getting our money out of their hands, creating new currencies, not just on websites, but in the arts, science fiction novels, and films, and stage, and new forms emerging from home computer technology. So it was very beginning from, but he was basically saying, like, you've got this gift of the internet. You need to use it to reach people as quick as possible before it's no longer safe to speak freely above ground, as he referred to it. And I think that's what we're doing. I think we are carrying on that legacy. So. Uh, I'm going to play this video for you and, yeah, just learn a little bit about Samuel Go for it. Samuel Edward Conkin III was born in Saskatchewan, Canada on July 8, 1947. After graduating high school, Conkin entered the University of Alberta, where he graduated with honors in 1968. Soon after, he arrived at the University of Wisconsin to begin graduate studies in chemistry. In 1971, he moved to New York City to seek a doctorate in theoretical chemistry at New York University. Konkin believed in forming alliances between left and right factions of activists in the hopes of building parallel economies, or what Konkin referred to as the counter-economy. From 1970 to 1975, he developed his libertarian theories about the counter-economy, taking inspiration from the marketplaces in ancient Greece known as the Agora. He believed that activists could withdraw their consent from the state by building parallel economies and parallel institutions that compete directly with the state. Although Konkin had achieved a Master of Science degree in chemistry, he reportedly refused to turn in his doctoral thesis because he, quote, didn't want to spend the rest of my life working for the military-industrial complex. Konkin also wanted to work full-time in the libertarian movement and the counter-economy. In 1975, 
he gave up his university studies and left New York, taking a three-week trip across the United States to relocate to Southern California. In 1980, he published his epic book, The New Libertarian Manifesto. In his book, he outlined his agorist philosophy and the strategy of counter-economics. In late 1984, he founded the Agorist Institute as his latest effort to propagate his ideas. Konkin was less active in the mid-1980s and early 1990s, but he re-emerged on the libertarian scene in the late 90s, early 2000s, when he was actively posting in libertarian forums on the internet. On February 23, 2004, Konkin died in West Los Angeles, California, at the young age of 56. In the 20 years since his passing, Samuel Konkin's philosophy of agorism and the strategy of counter-economics have gone on to inspire millions of people who are seeking alternatives to the ever-increasing violence of the state. Although Konkin did not live to see agorism become a popular underground philosophical school of thought or witness the growth of interest in parallel economies, we honor his efforts to lay the foundation upon which our movements are building. His ideas continue to serve as the inspiration for the Freedom Cell Network and the Greater Reset Activation. Samuel Edward Konkin III, we honor you and thank you for your efforts. So, I guess my big dream is that 20 years after I'm dead, somebody makes a cool video about me. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you a presentation, and I'm kind of cutting into my own time already, so let's get rolling with it. You guys ready for one more? You got a little more time? All right, I'll control it over here. Um, so my talk is called, What Won't You Do to Advance Liberty? What won't you do? Right? Because one of the most common messages or comments Miriam and I get as we travel is, do you ever sleep? Because people say, you're so prolific. You do all these things. You're doing documentaries and books. Do you ever sleep? And I guess for me that, you know, what won't you do to advance liberty is kind of what I talk to myself and say, like, what are you not willing to do to help those future generations, to help the children, right? Like, I'm pretty much willing to do anything that doesn't violate my principles and cause harm to other people, right? And my presentation today is going to be just some examples of the various types of work that I've done over the last 14 years. And my hope is that by sharing this with you guys, that in addition to all the other amazing ideas you've had, that if you're still looking for something, you know, we all, as, as somebody was saying earlier, if you're trying to exit, you gotta start somewhere, right? And part of exiting, I'm coming to realize, for, for, first of all, for those who don't know, the exit and build phrase, it came from my book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State. That was sort of my take on Konkin's ideas. And we exit slavery systems, we build new systems, um, you know, and, and there's, there's a process there, but it doesn't just happen overnight. There's steps you have to take, and so I talk about that in the book. But I've come to realize that exiting and building, at least for me, it shouldn't be seen as a turning our back on people. You know, to me, exit and build is, yes, I want to exit from the systems and I want to build new systems, but there's also still something in me, in my heart and in my spirit that calls me to continue to try to wake up our brothers and sisters who are under the spell. I don't see it as my job, per se, right? I, I don't dare have that big of an ego to think it's my job, but there is a part of me that realizes that, you know, like we were talking about, Melanie was talking about the Matrix earlier, Neo is helping new people and saying, welcome to the real world, right? The way I kind of see it is, yes, we're building the parallel economy, we're building the new stage, and I try to use my journalism and my voice to reach those who haven't found their way to the greater reset, right? Or maybe those who have started to wake up, but they're still focused on the problems. They don't see the solutions yet, right? And through my work, I can kind of extend a hand and say, hey, come see what we're building. We need you. We need your skills. Join us, you know? So for me, when I talk about exit and build, as we're gonna, I'm going to talk about a little deeper, 
I don't see that as turning my back on the people. I turn my back on the system and try to build better ones, but I don't think that means we should just uh, think that getting our land alone is going to fix things. And I've come to realize that. And for me, I also realize that I don't think we're free until all of us are free. And that's a big task because some people don't want to be free. And I'm not trying to force anybody to be free. But for those who desire freedom, like David and Sterling were both talking about, you know, we have to accept that some people do want to live under tyrannical government, and they think that that's the best solution. You can't drag someone to freedom. You have to let them find their way. So just want to make that clear as I talk about this. I don't think we should give up on people who haven't found their way to us yet. Because if, we had, if somebody had given up on us, then none of us would have been here, right? If somebody didn't come up to me in 2010 and hand me a 9-11 was an inside job sticker, I might not be here today. <laughs> and by the way, 9-11 was an inside job. All right, so let's get through this. I'm going to make the slides big, and I'm going to be small over here because I want you guys to see this. Street actions and protests. These are, this is, you're going to get a little preview of my life over the last 14 years. Every single thing I've tried and experimented with. The most obvious thing. How many people here have per participated in protests, marches, rallies, right? How many of those things led to the changes you want? Not too many, right? Did you meet good people, though? Did it feel good to express yourself, to get out there? So it has value, right? Maybe it doesn't get the change we want, but you meet new people, you recruit people, and then you work on the bigger ideas. And if you see that top right one, that was my buddy Johnny from Houston who was here just the last couple of days. I think the top left one, that was during COVID. We were some of the only people in Houston. Those are both COVID protests, actually, the top left and the bottom right. And, you know, when it really mattered, December 2020, we were on the streets and we made clear we weren't going to take it, even in Texas. And I think that's important. we got to remember that we have to stand up when it really matters. Marches, rallies, this is going back to Occupy, Occupy Houston. That middle sign there is the Houston Freethinkers banner. I started the group called the Houston Freethinkers in 2010. That bottom one, we went to Monsanto's offices for the March Against Monsanto, did some of that stuff. And again, we're meeting cool people. We're experiencing things. It feels good to get your voice out there. Another form of street action, we call them info jams, just plant printing out flyers or DVD. Back in the day, we used to do DVDs and print out thousands of DVDs and go to the football game or whatever and just a group of us in an hour just give out 10,000 DVDs. And, and you never know where that goes or what seeds are planted through that. Passing out flyers. The one on the left is in Houston during the TPP, if anybody remembers that. The one on the right is here in Mexico. Uh, me and Miriam and Raul, our friend, going out and passing out flyers about masks to people during the COVID times. And civil disobedience. This was a protest I organized in Houston about the torture going on in the U.S. Torture is something I feel very strongly about. It's one of the, there's so many crazy things that I, I feel like it's hard to keep up, right? We shouldn't forget the U.S. government is still committing torture. And other governments are participating in helping them. You don't re there's no reporting on it anymore, but don't let yourself believe it has stopped in any kind of way. And I was so offended by this. We organized this national march against uh, torture. We're trying to call attention to the CIA torture report and all this. So in Houston, we decided to do some civil disobedience. We dre dressed up like that in the orange jumpsuits, black bags on the head. And you can see in the middle one, we even we decided we're going to block the streets for a couple of minutes just to call some attention. I, I think sometimes you need to block the streets to get people's attention. I know that's like triggers some people, but sometimes you have to shut shit down to get attention. And for me, it's like people are being tortured. I write articles about people who are permanently injured and can no longer sit down because of the rectal feeding the U.S. government has done to them. And if I can't put on a simple jumpsuit and simulate waterboarding and block traffic for a minute while this person's taking that, you know, it just feels like that's a tiny thing I can do to try to raise awareness for me. That's how I see it. Thank you. So I've, I've tried street action, protests, rallies, marches. I've tried artistic stuff. I've, I've created all kinds of art in Houston. Does anybody know what wheat pasting is? 
you should learn about the art of wheat pasting. It actually started in Houston. It's, it's really blown up. If you're into street art, you basically just make an extremely strong paste. You get your art, you put it up on a box, and it's never coming off. And it's homemade paste. I can tell you how to make it in 10 minutes. And so I when I first started out, I was putting up fluoride. There's poison in the water. Wheat paste. You know, just going all around. We were drawing art. We were being really creative. And then as you guys, or for those of you who know, I have an alter ego, 33. I perform conscious music. And in fact, I'm going to perform a song for you right now. Because this is just another way to reach people, right? And this is the point I want to make. And what other way to make it than to share it with you? This is called awakening. I feel like there's this anger that I bottle up inside. And I don't know what to do with it, but it's only a matter of time before I explode on these people. My patience has been tried. Why didn't I find myself until my father died? Why does it take so much pain to make me a man? Not sure I believe in fate, but I'm trying to trust God's plan. I always knew there was something more than just TV and fame. I just didn't realize how dark and deep they take this game. The moment I woke up, I realized evil was for real. People who spend their days lying, yeah, they kill and they steal. And no, I'm not talking about your average street hustler. I mean the .01% who laugh as we fight each other. The hierarchy enslaving, you are a bunch of psychopaths. But they keep on winning, because we just don't learn from the past. But God opened my eyes for a reason. It's the healing season. I had to go through hell to find my way. I exercise my demons. I've never felt more powerful than when I question the power. So full of themselves, lost in arrogance, but in reality, the cowards. If you're searching for the devil, look no further than your government. The politicians are the puppets, but don't forget the false covenants. False prophets, mega churches making profits, the devil's loving it. They lie to your face and you take it. Do you prefer to be ruled? Wolves in sheep clothing, they got you fooled. They pull the wool over your eyes, feed you lies while they strategize and propagandize. Come on, my brothers and sisters, this is our moment to rise. They never saw us coming, but we are the antidote to their lies. We strive for truth and liberty. We strive to be better. Humanity's got its flaws. We've made mistakes, but this ain't forever. I know we're destined to build a better world we know is possible. It's going to take struggle and making ourselves responsible for our choices and actions. We have the power to manifest that which we know we deserve. We are humanity at its best. So, as we all know, music is a very powerful medium, and that side of me is going to continue to grow. You will see more of that, because there are some people who won't read my articles, and they won't watch my documentaries, but they might listen to a song. And for those who don't know, and I'll talk more about this later, my album, my music, it comes from my struggles with drug addiction, with going to prison at, a, at 20 years old, and being suicidal and turning my life around. And I know there's so many other younger brothers and sisters, just like I was 20 years ago, who are looking for this community. They feel hopeless, and they need to know they're not alone. And if my music, if my music can touch anybody that way, then it's worth it. All right. Now, when it comes to community building, 
I've lived, in, I've lived in three different activist houses, and what that means is we find a house, three or four of us live in it, and we start hosting documentary screenings. We start hosting Skillshares, teaching people how to do everything from speak Spanish to tie knots to make soap. We even had my grandma come down to Houston and teach us how to bake bread and make soap. She lives on a farm, and so she's got a lot of skills. We've done documentary screenings, and for seven years I did this every month from 2010 to 2017, every single month without fail. We would have a monthly meeting. That's one of the meetings at what, the, what was the Freethinker House there in the middle. And that's one of our barbecues or picnics. We would do social events, community garden events. I also, before this life, I was a promoter, um, always been involved in music. So I started combining those two things. The flyers you see on the top right, this is for, one of them is a show for Food Not Bombs. The second one was a benefit to get fluoride out of the water. It was called Free the Water. And so we started working with musicians and working with artists. And before you know it, people knew the name the Houston Freethinkers. They're like, oh, yeah. Even if they didn't agree with us on everything, they knew the Houston Freethinkers was a force for good in Houston. And that if we were out there, we were going to be fighting against either police brutality or building community gardens or having a fun show or doing something. And before you know it, we just got so integrated. The, we got a lot of press, both good and bad. We were called the local group of conspiracy theorists a couple times. But by and large, we got our message out. And it was just through coming together and doing community building practices like that. Uh, other ones, as I mentioned, doing community gardens, building, building gardens. Has anybody ever been in a community garden with some folks and you bring some food, maybe somebody's got a drum or acoustic guitar, and before you know it, it's, it's community, it's party. You're like, wow. And then we just, you look and you're like, wow, we just planted all these rows, we just cleared all this out in a couple of hours? We did that? It's empowering. That, that picture on the right is a group of us that we used to be a part of this big farm called the Last Organic Outpost in one of the poorest parts of Houston. And those are my dirty hands on the bottom, celebrating being in the dirt. The top left there is me at the Freethinker House. We were growing tobacco, tomato plants, all kinds of stuff. And those little jars of juice at the bottom left, we, one of our housemates had a really just ingenious counter-economic idea. We start noticing there's all these people in our neighborhoods that have orange trees and grapefruit trees, and they don't pick them ever. They're just wasting. So we went to their house and said, hello, how are you doing? Can we pick your fruit? Is that okay if we do that? Yes, please, it's just going to rot. So we took the fruit home. We recycled glass bottles. We started making our own juice, making our own kombucha. We posted on nextdoor.com before it got all crazy and said, hey, we're in the neighborhood. We have fresh juice for sale for this price. We started delivering juice to the local offices, to different people, just making money off fruit that was just going to fall down and rot. You know, that's the counter economy right there. That's entrepreneurship. And it was just everything we were trying to do was just to inspire our local community to to give a shit. I mean, that was kind of our motto in the beginning, the Houston Freethinkers, making it cool to give a shit since 2010. <laughs> because we were working with a lot of younger people, and as you know, there's, especially like in our community, it was like punk and metalheads who care, but they're also kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to go to a Skillshare, that sounds boring. I'm not going to go to a meeting or whatever, but I'll come to the party, I'll come to the show, and we would have information. So we, we tried to plant seeds where we could. And this is what I mean. We, that right there is a, on the right is a bunch of sweaty people in our house dancing to a little folk punk show. On the left is a band setting up. We used to have the mu this music festival called For the Community, completely free, 50 bands, 20 vendors. Basically, what I did in Houston was a prep for doing it on the international level. And we used to just bring people together in the same thing. In between the music, we would have a presenter. Sterling spoke there. Some of our speakers from here came. To, John came there. Danny, I think you might have come down. I don't know if we got you down. Uh, and we just had a mix of music, community, art, and then dropping, planting seeds to these people. So they knew we were about something, and we were subtly kind of trying to bring in the truth to them and, and, and kind of sl slowly red pill them. So that's sort of the artistic side of things. Now let's move to the political, a little more fun stuff. 
part of my political adventures have been confronting politicians and people. You see the woman on the left there with this, if you can see close enough, her face as she noticed, this is like a freeze frame as she notices I'm walking up to her. And she's like, uh, that was the former mayor of Houston. Her name's Anise Parker. I confronted her about six, seven different times about fluoride, about her line, about homelessness, all kinds of fun things. Captured it on camera. You know, just being a pain in their ass as often as possible. You know, I, I am the reason that the Houston Police Department no longer holds press conferences, and I'm, I'm proud of that, you know. <laughs> they realize, like, wait, people are getting in here and asking questions we don't like. I remember the first time I went in there and I had just a little shaky handheld camera. All the big news stations are there with their setups, and I'm like, the one guy. And right away I could see, oh, this is how the game's played. Softballs. You throw softballs and you can get all the questions you want. And I'm like, with my shaky camera, uh, can I get a question? And I drilled him about some contract that they had for some new surveillance equipment, and he lied to my face and told me they didn't have it, even though I already had the contracts. I'd already done the Freedom Information Act request. So I put out a video that night saying, Houston Police Department chief lies about surveillance. There happened to be a press conference the next day that I also attended, and I was asked to stay after class. I said, Mr. Bros, can you come here for a moment? And the liaison officer took me aside, and, and, and as non-threatening, subtly threatening as he could, he said, we want you to know you're welcome here. You're always welcome here. As long as you're a respectable journalist, a credible journalist. I looked on your YouTube channel this morning, and you said that the chief lied, but technically, he said he could not confirm or deny. And I told him, I said, look, as a journalist, I take my work very seriously, even if you don't take me seriously. And that's one tip. You have to take yourself seriously. They're not going to take you seriously. I started calling myself a journalist. They still try to tell me I'm not a journalist. I told him, I said, I take myself very seriously, and I'm not going to call torture enhanced interrogation, and I'm not going to call a lie when I know it's a lie and not confirm a denial. Here's the contracts. We know you're lying, and they never invited me back again. I was never allowed again. But my point is, these are just another avenue to try to reach people, to try to spread awareness by doing it by confronting politicians. On the right, that's a gentleman named Peter Hotez. Anybody heard of him? Dr. Peter Hotez? You can go to theconsciousresistance.com, and I actually got him to sit for or stand with me for seven minutes for an interview before he started squirming away. The sun's hot. I need to go. As soon as I started bringing up bears and stuff like that. But that video got some attention. Each of these is just like building momentum, showing people. What I like to do is I like to crack their illusion with politicians. They're surrounded by people constantly who just, yes, men and women, just give them, kiss their ass, or can I get a selfie with you? And the moment somebody steps into that bubble that asks them something they can't handle, you see all that illusion shatter, and they're just a squirmy person. I confronted the head of the CIA last year, a former head of the CIA, John Brennan, and he got trapped at an elevator. He couldn't go anywhere, and I'm just poking him, poking him, and he's just like, he, he just, waiting for somebody to rescue him. And in that moment, I could see that's the real person. That's not the person he portrays himself on his TV. This is the real person that's terrified that we're gonna wake up and question him. There's so much power in confronting them. And it, it takes a certain level of skill. If you watch my videos, you can see I'm, I'm very patient and I try to be, you know, I don't wanna go screaming and looking crazy because that will just make us look crazy. I wanna give them real questions and be patient with it. It's an art that I've tried to perfect. <laughs> So another sort of thing with the within the sort of um, political realm, speaking at city council and school board meetings, that on the left is me speaking at city council the first time I went in 2018 specifically about 5G. Has anybody seen my documentary, The 5G Trojan Horse? If not, I recommend it. Go to theconsciousresistance.com. You can find it, and you'll learn the whole story. Starting in 2018, I started exposing 5G in Houston, learned all sorts of corruption, and that video before YouTube deleted me off, YouTube deleted me in 2020 had over a million views because people were looking for information about 5G, and because it was a pretty good back and forth where I was just dropping knowledge on them. And 
I go there knowing the city council members don't give a shit for the most part. I had one guy that would listen to me and sort of, okay, Derek, you can have another minute. The rest of them would just sit there and ignore me. And I quickly found out that the mayor actually was connected to Verizon Wireless. He had received something called the 5G Wireless Champion Award. And <laughs> so he wasn't interested in the conversation. So I don't go to city council thinking, oh, they're going to listen to me and we're going to get change done. I've learned by now. It's, Probably not going to happen. But the beautiful thing is they post all this stuff on public access TV. I go rip it off there and load it on all my channels, and it gets way more views than it ever would. And then that gives people inspiration, like, dang, Derek, you did that? I can go to my council and do the same thing. And sure enough, people have sent me their videos and said, look, after you went, I got the courage to go to my council, to go to my school board, to go to this meeting or that meeting. And so I've been to school boards. I've been to the city council. The one on the right, it's kind of hard to read. It says, Metro faces public backlash after counter-terror initiative. And what happened was in 2012, the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, the people who grope you if you ever fly into the US, they announced that in Houston, they were launching a program called Bus Safe, where they were going to start searching all bus users, random bag checks, random ID checks, just for riding the bus, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and what they quote me in the article, I say, I don't believe we give up our Fourth Amendment rights just by buying a bus ticket. And so we made this a big stink. We didn't go ask the government to stop this. We literally found out, okay, when does Metro have their next board meeting? And then 200 of us showed up. We got the media to show up. In the first meeting, they were overwhelmed. And they said, okay, guys, we're going to set a new meeting two weeks later. We brought even more people to the second meeting. By the end of that meeting, they shut that program down, and it's never come back to Houston. <laughs> definitely, definitely one of my, my prouder accomplishments in terms of like, hey, because I think it's important for us to ask, can we measure the impact of our work? Whatever your work is, right? If your work is putting out podcasts, writing books, giving speeches, being a mentor, being a parent, right? Can you measure the impact of your success? And if you can't, it might be time to rethink a different strategy or to see what else you can do. I can literally look in my inbox and see people telling me steps or things I've done or a book I wrote or an article I wrote or a documentary I made, help them in this way or that way. We're getting messages right now about people saying, thanks for the greater reset, this is life changing. Like I can measure the impact of the steps I'm taking. And so I know I should keep going. We're having success, let's keep going. If I was hitting brick walls, I would try a new strategy. And I've had to try all kinds of strategies, which is why I have so much history here trying all kinds of things. So school boards, board meetings of companies, and yes, I did run for mayor of Houston, twice. <laughs> bros for mayor, bros para alcalde. Let's see, we got it right here. This, and look, here's part of the reason. You see that top right one, or top left one? That's Derek Bros on the local news. That happened about a dozen times from May of this year until they kicked me off the ballot this year in uh, August. This year I was kicked off. I ran in 2019, I ran this year again, and I largely ran in 2019 because of that 5G mayor I told you about. After he'd been running away from me and they'd been ignoring me at city council, I felt like, you know what? The only way I'm gonna be able to really raise awareness about the, the, my concerns about 5G is if I'm somewhere he can't run away from me. And it started out as a joke between friends. They were like, well, maybe you should run for mayor then. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I think we were sitting around smoking some weed or something. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then it really started to seep into my head. I'm like, well, look, if I ran, I could be on the debate stage with him. He's not going to be able to go anywhere. And so it kind of started, I was like, oh, I want to get him. But then as it evolved and as people started coming to me and Miriam and saying, please do this, because I was talking about vaccines in 2019 before most people were. I was talking about 5G. I was talking about surveillance. I was talking about all the issues we care about on a local level. And this is the thing, and I hate it. I wish it wasn't this way. But Derek Bro's local activist or local conspiracy theorist, depending on who you ask, doesn't get invited the same places that Derek Bro's candidate for mayor did. And it's so stupid that it works this way. There's this sort of false illusion that people buy into. Like, for example, 
I'm sitting at a restaurant talking to some friends, and somebody tells them that I'm running for mayor. This person's never met me, has no idea who I am for anybody. And all of a sudden, they want to take a selfie with me because I'm a candidate for mayor. That, to me, is like they're putting some sort of illusion that, like, oh, he's important because he's running for office. And to me, I'm like, I think everything I was doing before then was much more important. And if you want to take a selfie with me for that. But I kind of see these things, right? So I don't want to buy into that illusion. And I told people, I'm not here to tell you to vote for me necessarily. The first time around, people did vote for me. We had like 700 votes or so. I was you know, nowhere near the top. We knew that, though. I didn't go into it thinking I was going to win. I knew I would get access to TV stations, radio stations. I got invited to high schools, old folks' homes, white neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, rich neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods. For six months, I basically toured my hometown and spoke to so many people. And these are not people who know anything about this. Most of these people are what we might refer to in a loving way as normies, who they believe some of the propaganda. But back to what I said earlier, guys, if you heard me, if you're not the kind of person that has a strong enough critical mind where you can hang around other people who have different thoughts, you're probably not going to get that far. Miriam and I spent months, for example, with this past election, being around people that we fully knew were all about climate change narratives and maybe other kind of identity politics or this gender issue or whatever. And we didn't, oh my God, screw you, we can't work with you. We worked with them where we could. We tried to plant some seeds where we could. And as I mentioned, I got media coverage, I got access to places that I normally wouldn't, and I don't think this is for everybody. I do think, it, again, it takes a certain level of skill. I'm able to, I, I, my, part of my shamanic work is moving between worlds. I can hang out with the hippies in the jungle. I can, you know, come here. I can get in the suit and tie event. I can go on debate stages with politicians and run circles around them, and God, is that fun. I'll tell you what, like, <laughs> I love it. I love it, honestly. And when people see a real person like me on a stage with these people who have nothing really authentic to say, they see it, and, and, they, and so what ended up happening, just to kind of close things on with that, they ended up kicking me off the ballot this year because I, had, I was endorsed by the Harris County Libertarian Party. I actually showed up in a poll of 7% of people were saying they were going to vote for me if I was on the ballot, and that was making the news, and then all of a sudden, and I had anticipated, they used my 20-year-old felony to disqualify me in the state of Texas. I'm actually suing the state of Texas right now just because if I can sue the government, I'm kind of like, all right, let's do that. And, and, but realistically, I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but we met, Miriam and I met a lot of good people, including other people who, like me, are felons and who are good people who care about their community. And even though I don't necessarily believe in government, there, I'm thinking of one guy particularly who's just a force for good. And if that guy decided to run for city council, he would be way, he, he would actually do some good compared to these other people. Now, he would be running up a whole system, against a whole system of corruption. But my point is, if we win that lawsuit, it would basically change it so that felons, nonviolent felons could run for office in Texas if they wanted to. And again, I know that government isn't the answer, but the way I see it, and it might be hard for you to understand if you're not a felon and you don't understand that I still can't get rented certain places for something that happened to me when I was 20 years old. I still have people judging me. You know, in that mainstream world, that still hangs over my head. Thankfully, you guys don't care about those things and you accept me for who I am. But when I go back into that world, that's a big thing. We couldn't get an apartment rented when we moved back to Houston to do this. Like, it, it's still something that affects us. So the way I see it is if we can remove one less barrier to entry for a felon, then I think that's better. And in the hopes they might do some good, right? So I ran for mayor not because I believe politics is the answer to kind of conclude that thought, but because it's just another avenue to try to reach people. This is my whole thing. What won't you do for liberty? I'll run for office. I will. I won't ever run for anything bigger than that. I feel like if you're going to run for anything, town council, school, school board, your city council, whatever, I ran for mayor specifically because the mayor is one, the one that gets the media attention. If I ran for city council, I'm not going to make it on TV, right? It's a very strategic thing I was doing. So I know some people were like, I'm getting emails. Fuck you. I'm unsubscribing from you, Derek. I can't believe you sold out. How dare you? You're the one who taught me to exit and build. And I just want anybody who cares about that and who pays attention to what I do that much, that everything I do is strategic. 
I knew what I was doing. I knew I wasn't going to win, but I think we planted a good amount of seeds, and we got to do it in the fourth largest city in the United States all over the media. So I consider it a win, you know, for what it's worth. Okay, so some more strategies here. Academic and journalistic. I've written some books. That book on the left is my book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, the second edition, which I'm, I'm most proud of. As I said earlier, it's been inspired by Samuel Konkin. We have them out there if you want to check it out. You can also download it for free, theconsciousresistance.com slash howto. So I've written books to try to reach people. That middle flyer there is for a teach-in I did called Houston Under Watch when I learned that the Houston Police Department had Stingray cell phone surveillance tools. That's what the police chief was lying to me about. He wanted to pretend they didn't have them. And so I started just gathering all this research. I reached out to the ACLU when they actually cared about things like this. And we held a teach-in in Houston, invited everybody and said, hey, you want to come learn about what kind of tools the police have? Come to this event. And we had 100-something people show up, and I got to just share my knowledge. Like, hey, this is what I've learned. This is what I've found. I'm just sharing with my community because I want you all to be aware the police have these tools. Let's try to work on solutions, right? So I'm, I'm furthering the knowledge, spreading the knowledge. It's going further. The consciousness is becoming aware of problems we have. And that's my book, The Conscious Resistance Trilogy, which unfortunately we don't have here today, but you can buy online on the right. And that gets more into the spiritual side of things, which we're going to touch on in a moment. And then, of course, giving presentations, the Better Way Conference in the UK, Next Steps in Atlanta, you know, this, of course, the Greater Reset. I pretty much spend most of my year traveling across the US or different places that people invite me, giving presentations to try to further the knowledge. But I don't like going to echo chambers, so I'm being more selective and trying to choose events where I think the knowledge I'm sharing is gonna be new, right? Like, if you guys already get it, then what's the point of me coming, right? It's just so we can talk to each other and pat each other on the back. I, wanna, I don't wanna be in an echo chamber. I wanna keep spreading. So whether it's writing books, doing teach-ins, giving presentations, uh, my journalism through my articles and my documentaries and such, I'm trying everything I can because it's that important. We gotta reach people wherever they can. And like I said earlier with the music, some people are gonna jam my music and love it and that's all they'll, they'll tune into. And they're like, wow, they're getting the message through the music. They'll never read an article of mine. They're never gonna watch a documentary or whatever, but they'll jam the music and the seeds will be planted into them. And vice versa, some of you aren't gonna like hip hop, but you might read my work, you might read the book, you might watch a documentary, you might listen to a talk. So I'm trying everything because I think we need kind of an, like all hands on deck, let's try every solution we got. And I've got enough energy right now to do it all, so I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Researching, writing, producing documentaries, that's an interview I did with Mark Passio, who'll be speaking on Sunday. Producing documentaries, you can go to theconsciousresistance.com and check out all of our documentaries. You can go to thepyramidofpower.net to see my 17-part documentary series, uh, which is in 30-minute chunks, trying to wake people up to education, to media, to the food system. So if you've got a friend that's at least willing to listen and you can sit them down for 30 minutes and you don't want fear porn, you don't want screaming and a lot of the bad alternative media out there, I encourage you to check out the Pyramid of Power because I very put a lot of intention into only sticking to the facts, the things we can prove, which are already crazy enough, and not coming from a place of fear. Every single episode ends with solutions, of course, right? Because it's important. We've got to give people solutions. Yeah. I've, thank you. I've organized spiritual conscious events. The picture on the left, you can see a young Derek Bros shirtless there meditating. Get a good look while you can. And then on the right, there's another meditation I organized. We used to be a part of this group called the Meditation Flash Mob. Anybody ever heard of that? Med Mob was the name for short. And back in 2011, they had a couple of years of really big 
meditations, and I heard about it in 2011. What they did was they would say, okay, on this day, we're going to synchronize for a one-hour global meditation, like, all across these time zones. And they would encourage people to do it at very public places, like a flash mob. You know, you've heard, like, people show up and they do dance flash mobs. Well, the idea would be, let's imagine we're out here in Morelia, just in the middle of Centro, and 100 people just kind of come out of nowhere at the same time, sit down, and just start meditating for an hour straight. And laying down, sitting, whatever, and it just, you, not only are you going to change the vibration of that place, but of course people are curious, like, what's going on? What's this about? You put up a sign that says, hey, med mob, free to meditate, join us, you know, all over the world. And they were having these huge medita meditations. I was the organizer for the Houston group in 2011 and just started doing things like that. Drum circles, meditation flash mobs, men's circles, all kinds of things. Because how many people here recognize that this is a spiritual sort of experience and a spiritual battle we're in, right? And, and I, whatever your religion is, it, it applies, right? Because the truth is that the physical aspect is only one part of it. I mean, this is why my work is called The Conscious Resistance, because we need to heal the internal world, our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, and our traumas, if we're ever going to create a new world. Yes, we need to create new physical symptom, symptom, uh, systems. We need to create new economic systems, education systems, health systems, et cetera, et cetera. But we can do all that work, but if we don't do the inner work, those systems will crumble just as quickly as the ones we're watching crumble now. It might take a generation or two, but if we don't do that inner work, our egos, our pains, and all that stuff that we haven't dealt with will emerge and we'll come to the surface and soon enough we'll turn on each other. I believe this wholeheartedly that if we do not do the inner work and this important healing, uh, however that applies to you, obviously there's a million different modalities. I'm not here to tell you which modality to approach or, or you know, do. I like prayer, I like meditation, things like that. I like a good conversation with a good person, authentic, heart to heart, crying in each other's face, being real. I crave authenticity. You know, I don't always get it in my real family, but I crave it and I love that I can come here and meet you guys and just in 10 minutes, we're hugging. We're like sharing stories about each other's lives, right? That's what we need. We need more of that. That's the activism too, right? Do you guys get that? That's part of our activism. And this is one thing to recognize. Sometimes when we think about activism or that word, we think about the first pictures I showed, the protests, the rallies, the marches, right? That's what an activist is. But as I'm showing you, an activist can be all kinds of things. It can be somebody organizing meditations or documentary screenings or writing books. It can be somebody who just has a polite, conscious, compassionate conversation with another human being and helps them see that they're not alone, right? There's so many forms that our activism can take. And, I, and the way I see it is we're all activists. Some of us are just more active than others. And, you know, but everything you're doing, David was saying it earlier, I don't vote. I didn't even vote for myself, okay? I voted, you know, they, I'm just, it's not a thing. But... <laughs> But we do vote every day with our actions. Like David said, you vote with your wallet and you vote with your actions. How do you treat other people? What businesses do you support? You know, what are you doing in your internal world and where are you sourcing your food? All those different things are voting one way or the other, right? So I don't vote in terms of electoral politics, but I vote every day with my actions. And I try to make sure that it's a vote for the right thing, the things that I believe. Because as Samuel Conkin so clearly said, that we can't expect to create a libertarian or a, a free world if we're not taking free actions, right? You're not going to get there by using corrupted systems and expecting one day we're going to arrive at the paradise we hope to get to. So then we must try to find ways to take steps, take actions that are in line with our values if we ever hope to achieve those values in reality. Does that make sense? Yes. So we can't just speak about it. we got to be about it. Who's about it? You guys about it? All right. So it is a spiritual experience we're dealing with. And then one of the other ways, and this is sort of what the Greater Reset is all about, I've talked about trying street action art, protests, marches, political, academic, journalistic, spiritual. These are all things I've spent the last 14 years doing. And 
most recently, the exit and build strategy, exiting from slavery systems and building new ones. The picture on the right is Hakim and the, some of the crew of the Conscious Agora, our land, which is about an hour and 45 minutes away from here. We're really near the land in that picture. Uh, we bought the land after the last year's greater reset. You know, we're gonna start building this year if everything goes well, like we're, we're doing it, you know? And, and, and that's been a dream. I'll tell you this, in, in, in the third book of the Conscious Resistance Trilogy, which I wrote in 2016, I said, starting in 2020, I'm gonna begin building this vision of the Conscious Agora. COVID happened in 2020. Me and Miriam moved to Mexico March 2020, started looking for land immediately. The universe conspired with me to help that happen and uh, bring it to reality. So instead of being worried about what was going wrong in the world, we focused on our solutions and said, you know what, we've been saying we wanna move to Mexico. Let's do it now, why wait? The world's telling us now is the time, right? And then also the Freedom Cell Network. If you're not on the Freedom Cell Network, freedomcells.org. I know John's going to talk more about it. But this has really just been the way we help people throughout COVID. I mean, we started with about, John told me about it in 2015. I started putting videos out in 2016. The idea of organizing in local, decentralized groups, focusing on solutions, skill sharing, knowledge sharing, community aid, mutual aid, defense, et cetera. And this is what we believe is sort of the stepping stones to building the parallel society. I started promoting it over years. We built a couple of websites. And this website was launched in late 2019. In early 2020, we had about 1,500 people on there. And then COVID-1984 happened, and we just had exponential growth. Now we're past 42,000 members from around the world, plus countless others who are just doing it. There's people who are creating freedom cells on Telegram, people who aren't even on the internet who have just said, we're doing freedom cells, we just don't have a visual, virtual presence. And so many people have taken inspiration from this idea of coming together in community and trying to build outside the system. This is really what I think is truly the answer. Yes, I ran for mayor, and I don't know if I ever would again if it felt right. I also, just to kind of throw it back to that, I'm looking at this like it's 2023, 2030, seven years. All right, if I can reach people, I'm doing it. I'll put my energy, like I, I sacrificed certain things. We were having our apartment here in Mexico. We got a new apartment in Houston, paying on both places for six months, driving back and forth. It was not a cheap venture to do that, but it felt worthy to me. It felt like, you know what, if we can reach people and connect and do this, it's gonna be worth it. And it was worth it. But my point is, I believe the true answers, in addition to street actions, protests, marches, art, videos, podcasts, writing books, whatever you do, let's do it all. But let's also be prepared for what's coming. We all know the CBDCs, the smart cities. We could talk all day about that stuff. That's why you're here. And if we choose not to act, we're only failing ourselves in the future generations. We're failing ourselves if we choose not to act. Just think about it. If you can see the train incoming, you see the car wreck ahead, and we're all in the car talking about, man, that's a crazy car wreck ahead, right? It's getting pretty bad. But we just keep going about our lives. We're getting closer. We're talking about it. Man, it's getting real. We're going to keep posting memes about it. We're going to keep going. But we're not doing anything. We're not even, you know, we don't have an escape plan. We don't have a backup plan. And then before you know it, you wake up tomorrow and your bank announces, by the end of the month, all of your money will now be digital in a CBDC form, and you'll have to get it this digital wallet if you want to get your money back. And you're going to say, damn, I need that money because I have bills to pay, and I don't have any backup money. I didn't take any of my money out and put it in savings and silver or buy land with it or you know, teach myself skills with it because that's another thing to do with your money. Buy courses and workshops if you're actually going to take them and empower yourself. Invest in yourself with that money. But if you didn't listen, all of a sudden, here it is, the CBDCs are here, the digital ID and all that, and you're just kicking yourself because now you and your family are gonna have to figure out what to do. And we witnessed this during COVID. Do not let the memory fade. People were locked in their homes. We met people here in Mexico who had to escape Australia. They had to escape Germany because they couldn't walk their dog without a freaking permission slip. Don't forget what these people did and what they will do. Climate lockdowns. 
I believe these things are coming. I talk about this in my book. We know we're here for the solutions. But don't forget why we're focused on solutions. Don't allow yourself to become complacent and think that, oh, that's all in the past. It's over. None of us can predict the future. I don't know if it's going to be the cyber attack, the aliens, another pandemic, or whatever they got, whatever card they're going to play this time. But the point is, we need to be taking care of our mind, our heart, our spirit, our garden, our community, our friends, our family, our all of it, we need to think holistically. This is why I talk about holistic anarchism and holistic activism. If we know what's coming and we choose not to act, guys, we only have ourselves to blame. And I don't want to be, I don't want to see any of you in that situation. I don't want to get emails from you begging me to come to our land because you didn't take care of your shit. Because you're not, we're not going to have room for you. We're not going to have room, I'm sorry. <laughs> but realistically, I don't want anybody to be in that situation. I want us all to be in a place where we can, because the way I see it is, look, the more we take care of home base, the more likely we can say, I can help you. Right? But if I'm just scrambling and I'm in scarcity mode, hey, back off. Like, you know, we got our shit and you stay the fuck away. But if we are prepared and we've done a little bit, if we're forward thinking, we can actually help other people. And I want to be in a position to help other people. And, you know, to help myself, of course. Where am I on time? All right. Right on time. Okay. So this is where you can find a lot of my work. I'm going to kill the slides and wrap up in just a second. TheConsciousResistance.com is where my books, my documentaries, my podcast, everything are on there. The pyramidofpower.net, that is my website for my documentary series, one of them. I write articles for The Last American Vagabond on a weekly basis, if you want to keep up with that. And I have, uh, I'm, I've got a lot of content coming out this year. I'm going to be writing a book about fluoride. I'm going to San Francisco to cover the fluoride trial next week, uh, if you want to keep up with that. I'm going to keep doing every single thing I can, guys. And back to the question, what won't you do to advance liberty? I just gave you a dozen or more ideas of things from my personal experience, not talking abstractly, but things I've done, I've done personally, and I would love to share any tips and ideas if you need help getting started. And I'm willing to do even more. I'm going to keep thinking of new ideas. We thought of the Greater Reset. We're going to expand next year. We're going to do big things. I've got at least 70 years left in my life, and I'm going to give every single day, every moment to this cause. I commit to you and all of you at home and I call on you and ask you to work with me and to work with all of us here. Because this is our moment. I truly believe this is why we're alive, that this is why we are here in this moment. I believe that my creator put me here in this moment to be here with you, to connect with all of you people. And I know that we are here for a purpose. I know that this is our time to make that change. Like I said, thank you. One of, one of the lyrics, in that song I shared, Awakening, I said, they never saw us coming, but we are the antidote to their lies. And that's my message, my friends. You know, we're talking about building parallel systems, getting out of these systems, try everything you can, stay in line with your values, cause no harm, don't take shit, and stand for what's right. As John likes to say, we've got truth on our side, and we know the truth will win in the end. And I know that the human spirit is ready to flourish. We might go through some tough times, but rest assured, my friends, we are the ones that are here to change it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, can I get y'all to do my affirmation with me? Will y'all do my affirmation with me? All right. Hey. Thank you so much, truly, I appreciate you. And honestly, the Greater Reset is one of mine and Miriam's favorite part of the year. We live for this. We work for six months for this moment to bring you guys here, and it, it, it fills my heart. I wanna just end things before we close the stream with my positive affirmation. Guys, on the way out, if you would pause for one moment, I think you wanna be a part of this, or I invite you to be a part of this. Everybody take a deep breath together.
It's been a lot of information today. There's going to be more tomorrow and Sunday. We got a jam session tonight. We're all here to come together to build something beautiful. And let's just end on a, on a positive note. You know, we're talking about manifesting, and I fully believe we can manifest. The things that start as a seed in, your, in your, your mind, your brain, once you say it out loud and you share it, you write it down, you're putting it into physical reality. And if you put action behind it, you will see it happen. So this is an affirmation that has helped me through some tough times when I was in prison and just over the last 15 years. If you feel inclined, please repeat after me. I am powerful. I am powerful. No, not good enough. I am powerful. I am powerful. Yes. I am free. I am free. I mixed it up, didn't I? I am beautiful. I am, beautiful. <laughs> I am powerful. I am powerful. And I am free. Thank you, guys.